You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. TrickBot gets hit by both U.S. Cyber Command and an industry team led by Microsoft. CISA and the FBI warn that an unnamed threat actor is chaining vulnerabilities, including zero logon, to gain access to infrastructure and government targets. Ben Yellen shares his thoughts on the U.S. House's report on monopoly status for some of tech's biggest players. Our guest is David Higgins from CyberArk on how work from home has put a light on privilege access security. And the Five Eyes Plus Two call for legal access to encrypted communications. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, October 13th, 2020. The unknown operators that Krebs on Security said were disrupting TrickBot turns out to have been neither vigilantes nor criminal rivals, but rather U.S. Cyber Command, the Washington Post reported late Friday. Cyber Command had been concerned that TrickBot's use in deploying ransomware made it a potential threat to the November elections. The disruption apparently took the form of sending updates to the botnet's command and control servers, that effectively severed communications with the machines the gang controlled. The updates, of course, were bogus. The damage wasn't permanent, but it was disruptive, and it was noticed and remarked upon by the criminals themselves. In high, all-caps, chatroom dudgeon, Cyber Command's operations are, as the New York Times describes them, from Fort Meade's Midterm Election Protection Playbook, developed in 2018. Microsoft also took action against TrickBot with the cooperation of ESET, Lumen's Black Lotus Labs Threat Research, NTT, and other organizations, obtaining a court order allowing Redmond to take the botnet down. The New York Times says Microsoft and its partners had been unaware of U.S. Cyber Command's activities against the botnet and that the two actions appear not to have been coordinated. The effect of the sort of takedown Microsoft and its partners executed is basically twofold. First, it prevents further deployment of the malware, and second, it cuts off already infected machines from executing further commands. Sophos, which congratulated the companies involved in the takedown on its blog, also downplayed in an interview with IT Wire the likelihood that ransomware or a financial information stealer would represent a dedicated threat to elections. Insofar as they're talking about criminal ransomware gangs, they've got a point. The gangs are interested in money and in politics only insofar as it can get them money. But there are other respects in which ransomware can threaten the conduct of an election. Some ransomware has proven itself imperfectly containable. 
and it can infect systems that aren't its principal targets. But more to the present point, TrickBot is thought to be a well-established Russian-speaking gang, and such gangs operate at the sufferance of Russian security and intelligence services. They're regarded as easily co-opted, and it would have been unwise to ignore a significant botnet as representing nothing more than a criminal operation. Microsoft's corporate vice president of customer security and trust, Tom Burt, said Microsoft had been planning the move since April. In his characterization, he said, quote, We have now cut off key infrastructure, so those operating TrickBot will no longer be able to initiate new infections or activate ransomware already dropped into computer systems, end quote. Some experts maintain the disruption is limited and likely temporary since the botnet is diffuse and dynamic. Swiss botnet monitoring firm Fado Tracker shows numerous tricked-out servers still online. Threat analysts at Intel 471 say they have not seen any significant impact on TrickBot's infrastructure and ability to communicate. But this seems in some respects unduly pessimistic. As those who've monitored the gang's chatter have observed, the hoods themselves have been doing a lot of complaining. Bloomberg offered a different perspective. In its far more optimistic estimation, quote, it will likely take months or years for the criminals to recover, if at all, end quote. According to Security Boulevard, the TrickBot perps are considering a 1,400% ransomware demand raise in retaliation. And of course, there's no more a permanent solution to ransomware than there is to, say, shoplifting. The best you can do is contain the gangs and reduce what the retailers call shrinkage. On Friday, the Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and the FBI issued a joint alert updated yesterday describing an effort by APT actors to chain Windows and VPN vulnerabilities in a campaign directed against state, local, tribal, and territorial government networks, critical infrastructure, and election support systems. They succeeded in penetrating and establishing a degree of persistence in some of their targets, and the target selection is suggestive, but CISA and the Bureau say that election security wasn't compromised. The alert includes an extensive review of the exploits used, and it outlines measures that organizations can take to protect themselves. You can find this alert and others on the CISA.gov website. On Sunday, representatives of the Five Eyes, India, and Japan issued a joint international statement on end-to-end encryption and public safety. The statement affirmed support for strong encryption, but deplored, quote, counterproductive and dangerous approaches that would materially weaken or limit security systems, end quote, and then called upon companies to design systems so that law enforcement could, with proper authorization, access encrypted communications. They specifically called for an international regime in which governments and software companies would cooperate to achieve three goals. First, embed the safety of the public in system designs, thereby enabling companies to act against illegal content and activity effectively with no reduction to safety and facilitating the investigation and prosecution of offenses and safeguarding the vulnerable. Second, enable law enforcement access to content in a readable and usable format where an authorization is lawfully issued, is necessary and proportionate, and is subject to strong safeguards and oversight, and engage in consultation with governments and other stakeholders to facilitate legal access in a way that is substantive 
and genuinely influences design decisions. In the view of the officials who drafted the joint communique, which is framed entirely in terms of protecting children from online exploitation, a goal hardly anyone likely to gainsay, the way in which end-to-end encryption is presently handled amounts to irresponsibility. Quote, End-to-end encryption that precludes lawful access to the content of communications in any circumstances directly impacts these responsibilities, creating several risks to public safety in two ways. One, by severely undermining a company's own ability to identify and respond to violations of their terms of service. This includes responding to the most serious illegal content and activity on its platform, including child sexual exploitation and abuse, violent crime, terrorist propaganda, and attack planning, and by precluding the ability of law enforcement agencies to access content in limited circumstances where necessary and proportionate to investigate serious crimes and protect national security where there is lawful authority to do so. So, the goal is a familiar one. Devise means by which duly constituted legal authorities could, under the right circumstances that would be strictly controlled, gain access to otherwise inaccessible communications. The criticism is equally familiar. Privacy and security hawks object that criminals and other bad actors could, in principle, find and exploit what would, in their view, amount to legally mandated security weaknesses. And, of course, there's also the objection that such capability would amount to a standing temptation to abuse by even well-intentioned law enforcement organizations. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using Identity Orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. 
Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. David Higgins is EMEA Technical Director at CyberArk. He joins us with thoughts on how work from home has changed the threat landscape and made privileged access management and security even more important. Privileged access management is something that's become a key element. It's been hugely important from a, from a security strategy. The reason being is when we look at incidents, uh, whether they be cyber attackers, nation state, there's a commonality that takes place in these attacks, which is at some point they look to escalate their privileges. They look to perform credential theft and, and, and perform lateral movement in order to, to get to their objective, whatever that may be. So it's become a really key element in a security strategy to protect that privileged access, which historically has been your administrators, IT admins, you know, um, but also in today's world, it's expanding to, of course, the cloud platform automation. And even the definition itself of privilege is, is, is expanding to some business type users as well. So at its basic level, I mean, is it, is it who in your organization has access to various parts of your network, the, the, the different data that's, through, that's uh, found throughout? At a basic level, yeah, that's part of it, right? It's, you know, if you, if you look at it from the kind of traditional IT administrator, these are individuals that have the keys to the kingdom. They're keeping the lights on within the business. They're supporting servers, maintaining databases. And, and they'll be using separate identities in order to execute that kind of access. Uh, which is the privileged access. And it's that access that's targeted and it's therefore that access that needs to be protected. We need to make sure that the right users are getting the right level of access at the right time and importantly for the right reasons. Yeah, I, c- I could envision that, you know, people would, uh, the, the, the natural impulse would be, well, you know, let's give the CEO access to everything. I mean, you know, she's the boss after all. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, uh, she's likely to be a real target. So perhaps, you know, that that's the person who you want to minimize access in case someone uh, gets into their accounts. Definitely. You've got to look across the different types of privileged identities. And, and that isn't just the, the IT admins, exactly as you mentioned, right? It could be the CEO, it could be the head of finance. And and you've got to focus on what's going to pose the biggest business impact to your organization. And that's that's where to start. That's where to, to lock down. But you're right, just simply because someone is senior or executive doesn't mean they should just have access to everything. The access to everything is, is the approach that's kind of been taken today. It's, well, it's easier just to just drop them in the admin group, right? Give them the access they need. It's a lot more than they need, but then there's no formal process or proper process to make sure that's being reviewed or being you know, uh, uh, kind of removed afterwards. And this uh, just kind of builds up over time. And you know, when an attack is in an environment, they're going to seek out those accounts that have far-reaching access rights. That's David Higgins from CyberArk. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security, also my co-host over on the Caveat podcast. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's Caveat, you and I have uh, a interesting discussion about uh, important news that <laughs> dropped, which is the report from the House of Representatives 
on um, the monopolies, the claimed monopolies, what they're claiming are monopolies of some of the biggest tech companies in the world, the Facebooks of the world, the Googles, the you got your Facebooks, you got your Amazons, you got your Apples. Um, can you unpack this for us here? I mean, what, what's the upshot of this report from the House? Sure. So it is a 450-page report that was released after this House committee collected over 1.6 million pages of documents and mm. held uh, pretty contentious hearings with the CEOs of these companies. Um, and, you know, it's it's not easy to haul Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, Tim Cook, and Sundar Pinchai <laughs> in front of a congressional committee uh, and get them to share their anti-competitive practices. Um, so it was a very <laughs> comprehensive investigation, and this is the culmination of that investigation. And what they determined is that these four companies really do have monopolistic power as it relates to their spheres of influence. Um, you know, Facebook controls the market for social media, it's been able to bully its competitors out of the market. And, you know, not only are they market participants, but because of their position um, within that market, they're able to set the rules and standards for that industry. And that's very destructive for the promotion of competitive business practices. Um, hmm. And the same is true for Amazon as it relates to online shopping, Google for search engines, uh, and Apple for all of the things that they produce, the App Store, iPhones, etc., so this report not only calls them out for having monopolistic power that's um, akin, in their opinion, to some of the monopolies we saw at the beginning of the 20th century that led to the progressive era in this country, uh, the oil barons and railroad tycoons, uh, as they mention, uh, but it also has some recommendations. Uh, so one of the recommendations is they want to make it tougher for tech giants to buy up smaller companies in order to consolidate the industry. Uh, they want to introduce a non-discrimination requirement to stop platforms from prioritizing their own products over rivals. Um, hmm. And they also want a, uh, you know, a series of measures to enforce antitrust laws. Uh, they would increase their own powers as members of Congress, but also they want to empower federal agencies to start enforcing some of the antitrust laws that have been on the books but that have been dormant. Uh, over the past 40 years where we've really sort of abandoned our centuries-long effort at uh, going against these anti-competitive business practices. So, you know, the moral of the story in the report is all of these companies have delivered clear benefits to the general public. Um, you and I and probably all of our listeners have used their products and have reaped the benefits of their products. But when you have these types of companies that run the marketplace and compete in that same marketplace, they can come up with a set of rules for themselves while they force others to play by an entirely different set of rules. And that ends up hurting uh, the consumer. When the consumer doesn't have choices, there's less incentive for these large companies to protect the interests of their users. And we see that with things like, you know, Facebook and its political ads, uh, Facebook and the Cambridge Analytica scandal, um, hmm. where, you know, if there were actually a competitive marketplace, people could go and use the services of a competing social media company. That would be a way of holding Facebook accountable. But because of their market power, that's just not really an option. So it's the consumers that end up getting hurt the most. Um, so I think it's a, a really interesting report. Um, obviously, most people are not going to read all 450 pages, but I'd highly encourage you if you have interest <laughs> in this stuff. At least That's at what least, we have you for, Ben. <laughs> I know. Well, it's not like I'm going to read all 450 pages. However, I did read the executive summary, and I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. So, uh, Well, there you go. <laughs> uh, How much... 
what do you suppose could come of this? I mean, we've got, obviously, these companies disagree with the findings. Um, and with the size of these companies comes a lot of influence. You know, they, they are able to to invest in the, the the world's best lobbyists. Yeah, exactly. So not only do they have monopolistic power, they also have a lot of political power. You know, and they also make a lot of content moderation decisions that, you know, can augment their own power as well. Uh, so it's hard to know exactly what's going to come from this. This is a recommendation from one House committee. Uh, we're getting towards the end of uh, this session of Congress, meaning it's very unlikely that they will turn this report into some kind of legislative proposal in the near term. But if this is something that uh, lingers as a salient political issue and we're in a future Congress, um, you know, this might be the starting point for negotiations on a bill to increase competitive practices in the tech industry. And I think that's something that actually could garner uh, bipartisan support. I think there are members on both the political left and the right who have, you know, maybe different problems with monopolization in this industry, but both uh, see it as a major concern. Um, you know, so I would not necessarily write this off as an issue that's going to be destroyed by polarization. The tech companies will um, fight to, you know, fight tooth and nail uh, against this. They want to maintain uh, these anti-competitive practices because that's what's allowed them to accumulate $5 trillion worth of capital. Um, Mm. And, you know, that's a a very difficult interest to go up against. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think this really could be the basis for at least the start of a movement to erode at some of these anti-competitive business practices. All right. Well, Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. And it plumps when you cook it. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.